Hello and welcome to In the Fume Hood. I'm Matt Cooper, Associate Teaching Professor of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering at North Carolina State University. And joining me for our Chemi Talk Show is Courtney Fluger, Associate Teaching Professor of Chemical Engineering at Northeastern University. Courtney, you're here with me. Say hello to the listener. Hello, listener. <laughs> Courtney and I actually just finished this recording together in person as we're both attending the 2022 ASWE conference in Minneapolis. Courtney, you want to give an overview of what we talked about? Sure. Let's do it. So, uh, I talked about uh, the paper that we I just presented at ASEE. Which won a big award. Which won a big award. Um, it won the Pick 5 uh, Best Paper. Uh, and that was on uh, collaborative and inclusive teams uh, in collaboration with um, Cindia Rivera Jimenez and Anastasia Hauser. Uh, we discussed uh, workshops for the upcoming mm -hmm. Kemi Summer School. Uh, I'm giving two workshops, um, one on inclusive teams with Cindia uh, and one on uh, clean water projects that I developed uh, hands-on projects with Jen Weiser and Christine Horvat. Uh, we also talked about uh, bench scale river cleanup projects that, mm. uh, that we do in our unit operations uh, lab at Northeastern, and I've done that with Lucas Landhair. We talked about uh, my Brazil dialogue, where I take students to Brazil. Yeah, and you won a big award for that one, too. I did. It's on sustainable energy, and I won the Innovation in Chemical Engineering Education Award through AICHE for that one. Uh-huh. And I adapted that program to virtual in 2020 as well. And lastly, we talked about my love for my favorite band, Hanson. Yes, Mbop. Mbop. <laughs> So uh, thank you very much, Courtney. Uh, so the big buzz at ASWE this week has been the upcoming Kemi Summer School. Courtney and I are both giving workshops at the event, as you heard, and In the Fume Hood has also been selected to do two live tapings of the Kemi Summer School. In the first taping, I'll be interviewing a panel of Kemi educators about summer school's past, while in the second one, a panel and I will reflect on this year's summer school. Be sure to reserve your seat at either or both of these events. I'd love to see everybody. With the preceding introduction now complete, here I offer the In the Fume Hood disclaimer as follows. Just to be clear, this podcast is recorded completely outside of my guests and I's normal work responsibilities on our own time, and all opinions expressed in this podcast are likewise our own. They are not intended to reflect those of our employers, funding agencies, professional societies, or frankly anyone. Just us. It's been really good seeing you again here at ASWE. So for the listener, we're here at ASWE together. This is my uh, myself, Matt Cooper, and my guest, Courtney Fluger. Courtney, say hello, hello to our listener. <laughs> so uh, it's been a really terrific week here in Minneapolis. Wonderful weather and everything else. Have you enjoyed the conference? Uh, it's been amazing. I've had a lot of good times so far. You know? Yeah, me too. <laughs> and we started off with the... Um, did you go to the Taste of Minneapolis thing I on did. Sunday? I mm did. -hmm. Yeah. Did you get a spam slider? I, I did not. They had spam sliders, which I didn't really realize was a Minneapolis delicacy, but I guess that's what they're saying it is. I have had a lot of cheese curds. Yeah. Every menu I've been to, uh, the taste of Minneapolis, but every place we've been to so far, there has been cheese curds. See, and the thing was, is that I actually was talking with somebody before I came here, and I was like, oh, they're going to have, like, you know, taste of the city. And it's like, well, what's, what's a taste of Minneapolis? Like, what's the specialty? And I was like, I guess like cheese curds, right? But then that's more of a Wisconsin thing. Do they battle over? Is there like a who has the best cheese curds? And that's a very good question because we said the same thing. I thought it was Wisconsin. But every meal I've had has had cheese. There's a lot of cheese here. Yeah, now, I mean, 
I'm not too concerned about that because cheese is like sweet, divine ambrosia as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I love cheese too, don't worry. <laughs> so uh, I think probably the best thing I've heard about at ASEE is what you told me just before we hopped on to record, which is that the talk that you just gave won best paper in the PIC, which is the Professional Interest Council here at ASEE. PIC 5 is what it is. And I mean, that's amazing. I, I don't know anyone that's ever won best paper in the pick. So congratulations oh, to you. you and your co-authors <laughs> and your co-authors. I know Cindy was on that. Cindy Rivera Jimenez mm-hmm. was on that uh, paper with you. Who else was on that paper? Uh, Anastasia Hauser from University of Kentucky. Okay, that's great. So could you tell me a little bit about that, uh, that paper? What did, what did you guys do? Sure. So um, we were looking at collaborative and inclusive teamwork in teams specifically for us in chemical engineering capstone. So um, what we see is um, a lot of professors really teach more towards the result-oriented tasks in teams, right? So uh, you give them a task and then you evaluate Uh, groups on how well they did that task but as they're working together there's all this inclusive and collaboration that happens uh, while they work in teams and these are more socially oriented um, attributes that they do as teams Um, psychological safety you know uh, um, the belief that they're not going to be rejected when they come up with new ideas Mm -hmm. Um, interdependence being able to um, feel like they um, can be part of uh, a group, right? So there's these social social attributes that also go with the result uh, attributes in a team. And so what we did is we looked at those in Capstone 1, and um, we gave them an open-ended question and kind of said, what do you think uh, is an ideal um, of an effective team? Mm-hmm. And they got to just open answer what they wanted to. And then we coded those depending on. So a little qualitative research. Uh Very cool. And um, it was very interesting to to see that the students really valued a lot of the social qualities along with the results oriented qualities. So what kind of social qualities? What came up in the codes that you guys came up with from the interviews? Uh, So the um, big things we're talking about communication, mm-hmm. um, respect, um, uh, understanding each other, um, ways in which they talked a lot about, you know, um, being able to work together. Um, so those are more the social oriented ways that they they felt were very important when working in a team. Interesting. So did you hear anything about like more of the DEI type things? You mentioned like respect, for Mm -hmm. instance, was inclusion something that they talked about? They did, yes, and feeling included in their teams. So uh, this is coupled, this this work and asking them these questions were coupled with us actually um, doing inclusive team um, interventions or strategies in the classroom with the students. So we did things like give lectures on what does it mean to be inclusive? How do we perform peer evaluations that are constructive and helpful? Um, team charters. I'm a big, a big proponent of Me team too. charters. Yeah, I have my students sign. We call them team contracts. Uh, team contracts, uh, community agreements are for them called quite right. a few things. And I, I just like it because they have the, they give them 
it's a way that the groups can really set expectations as a group. I have nothing to say with it. As a group, you get to decide how you want to work and when you want to work and how you communicate. You, you nailed exactly what I do, too. So what, that's one of the big things. And I think they are sometimes surprised whenever I get out their team contracts, whenever there's a conflict or something amongst the team members. And I sort of point out, like, well, this is the way you guys said that uh, these are the expectations. This is what you said, that you would ha- how you would handle it. And students are sometimes like, oh, I am really thankful that was all real. Like, I thought this was just like an exercise. I'm like, no, like, this is really like what the ideals of your team were supposed to be. And so if you said, I don't like it whenever people, we don't like it when people show up late. So after one time being late, you're going to get a warning. And after that, like, unfortunately, we're going to dock your points on peer evaluations. And then students are like, well, they dock my points on peer evaluations because I was showing up late. It's like, well, isn't that what you agreed to? Like, mm-hmm. you signed that piece of paper that says that. Definitely. Actually, I have them. I have multiple milestones in Capstone to kind of keep them, um, you know, with communication and that sort of thing. But after each milestone, I have them revisit. I ask them, did you revisit your team charter? Uh, do you feel like it needs to be reevaluated or you need to change something to keep the, the group effective? So I kind of always bring it back so that make sure that they, <laughs> yeah, you know, look at it again. Uh-huh. So it's not just, oh, we did that in the early semester and I don't care anymore. <laughs> right. And I always give them a little lecture about teamwork beforehand. And we talk about things like, you know, group think and, uh, you know, effective teaming and giving, like you said, important feedback to teammates because... Every now and again, when you're working on a team, somebody might do something that's kind of perceived as, you know, less than appropriate by the rest of the group. And, well, how do you deal with that? And it's important to be able to handle conflicts appropriately. Like, that's so important as an adult. And you have to be able to build those skills. And one of the things I've seen with some of my students, and I'm not sure if it's, I don't want to be one of these people that's like, oh, you know, these young people these days. (laughs) But I do feel like sometimes they aren't as ready to, say something negative to someone's face to to deal to attack a problem and say i wasn't happy when you did this you know uh, you hurt my feelings when you did this i was disappointed when you did this kind of talking about how it made you feel and then how can we get past it they much prefer to put things in writing which i've tried to explain is really not a good idea because then they read it and then you know they get mad the person reads it they get mad and then they read it again and they get more (laughs) mad and so i think there's a lot of good stuff there and giving effective feedback i think is a really important part of being an adult in all of your work relationships personal relationships and all that very much so so um one thing i do is i use um an online platform called called teammates Mm -hmm. and it's part of a peer evaluation and I do it at least two times in the semester sometimes three um and this uh what this does is ask the students four questions kind of like how did you perform in the team what did you do as part of the project then how did your team members you know uh perform in the team and they rate each one of their team members both on the Likert scale and then they can have comments but there's two comments. There's one comment that goes just to me. Right. And one comment that can go to their teammates, each one of them separately. And so uh, sometimes, <laughs> one, I read all of them before they send them out just to make sure that they're all um, constructive right. for their team, the ones that go to their teammates. And the ones that go to me, and I'll see if there's a disparity between mm-hmm. what they tell me and what they said about their their teammate and if I feel like there's a disparity I'll bring the whole group together and I'll say 
how effective do you think you're being, you know, like you are together? Are there ways in which maybe we can talk about how we can maybe work together in, in becoming better? And I'll bring in that team charter again. And uh, it depends on what, of course, the topic is and if it's a bit more on the personal side versus maybe a more more effective, like, time management. Somebody always coming in late. And we can try to talk about how that would relate back to the team charter. And I, I try not to be too much, but sometimes I need to kind of be that person in between. Right. Just to, to, to liaise them on what they can do mm-hmm. to be potentially a little bit better. Yeah, I think that... It's important to be that person, too, because, and I tell my students this, is that at least you know that for me, I'm going to care and I'm going to really try to help you succeed. You're not maybe going to get that treatment at your first job Mm -hmm. where maybe somebody says, like, you can't work with your people that are on your team. I'm getting very irritated with you. And maybe they won't give you a lot of advice or a lot of help because it's just kind of a burden for them. So I always try to say, like, this is a good opportunity for you to work these things out. Like, don't look at this as a negative that maybe you've run into a snag. It's something that you got to learn how to deal with, and I'm here to help you with that. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of that work that you presented with, or that you authored with Cynthia and I've already forgotten the Anastasia. name. Anastasia. 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 Yeah. Uh, the work that you uh, put together with them that won that pick award. So you're also going to give a couple short workshops at the upcoming Kemi Summer School, and one of them is based on that work, right? Yes, uh-huh. And so there's another one, too, that you're giving with Jennifer Weiser from Cooper Union and our friend Christine Horvat from University of New Haven, where you're going to discuss the development of first-year cornerstone projects you developed. And those had a focus on clean water, too. So two kind of very different things, right? Mm. And I'm curious... Could you kind of give us a brief synopsis for our listener about what those workshops are going to be like? Like what maybe they can look forward to and what cool things you have planned for them? Sure, sure. So the one that um, me and Cindy are going to me and Cindy are going to be doing in um, uh, summer school will be more on uh, team dynamics and talking about how to use uh, strategies in the classroom to help foster those inclusive team. Um, dynamics in, with the students. So a lot of the strategies that uh, I briefly had one slide today in my talk that was like, here's some strategies you can do. So we'll tweeze out those strategies and brainstorm how um, faculty, specifically um, newer faculty, um, can use some of these strategies to help their uh, team dynamics or their group, especially in project-based, a lot of these project-based uh, courses. Very cool. Yeah, and then the hands-on one um, is more on actually developing different types of projects. So um, I worked in first-year engineering at Northeastern for six years before I moved over to chemical engineering. And I developed, um, I helped develop their curriculum, their first-year curriculum, or redesigning it, I should say. Um, Looking at how you can take a project engineering design and they had different tools like AutoCAD and SolidWorks visual tools, along with programming, a C++, MATLAB, and Arduinos. And how to actually use the project to then develop and use programming. So with the clean water, what I did is I had the students um, use the Arduino and actually come up with um, developing a turbidity meter. Cool. So I gave them um, a, uh, they had to come up with, um, 
a calibration. So I gave them like a different samples that they had to make a calibration curve. So they did linear regression and they tested this. And these are all first years testing linear regression um, from the data that they got from the Arduino after they made the um, turbidity sensor using a light sensor on the Arduino. Um, and then they'd have to make a filtration device and then test their unknown sample with the calibration curve that they had and how well their system worked and then look at the engineering design. That That's way. super cool. It reminds me of, I, I interviewed Tony Butterfield last season and he did something very similar with not turbidity of water, but almost if you want to like turbidity of uh, air, I guess, where I was looking at pollutants in air and he used something kind of similar where it was like, you know, a light scatter and you know the, the detector and everything to, and he kind of did citizen science with all of these young people around the state of utah and looked at what local pollution was it was super interesting and this seems like the same sort of thing where you're showing these young people how to well i guess first year engineering students how to develop a device with an arduino which is a really cool little gadget mm -hmm. and then they're able to actually collect real data Yep. on something and they can do citizen science for that if they want to. Yeah, totally. Um, I did some other things. So afterwards I had them do a much more open-ended design doing clean water and they had to actually make their own uh, testing devices and a lot of them did like um, conductivity is another one that they could use as a testing device. So some of them did like desalinization of water like by different means. Um, and determining the salt concentration then, by the electrical conductivity? Yes. Very mm -hmm. interesting. So, I like that too. Yeah, so there's different things I was trying to do is connect real world problems that they know somewhat of, but how they can relate that to engineering, right? And relate that to larger real world issues. So that's a, a big thing that I like to do. Real world, connecting real world problems and then seeing as an engineer that you can, you have this impact that you could um, be designing something that can help better the world and society. That's really great, which is what as engineers we want to do all the time anyway, right? Yeah. So that's a really nice segue because the next thing I wanted to ask you about was this design project that you, a friend of the podcast, Lucas Landher, and you were doing where it was it was for your process control course, I think? Uh, the River Project? Yeah, the River Project, uh, unit yes. Unit Operations Unit lab. Operations, yeah. okay. You yeah. already knew what I was going to ask because yep. it's so unique and cool. <laughs> so the uh, River Project, as I recall, was where you had students actually build like a little river, which is super fascinating. It was like yeah. me as a kid in the sandbox <laughs> yeah. building little rivers, right? Which was a favorite activity of mine <laughs> as a kid. And students had to come up with ways to deal with pollution events that you would introduce. And so you'd introduce you know, a pollutant into their river and then they had to come up with ways to clean it up which seems kind of, you know, like maybe there was a bit of an inspiration for your turbidity thing and having students come up with ways to reduce the turbidity. And so I'm wondering, you know, that's a really wild project, like building a river. So how did that work in practice? You know, how did, how did the students make their rivers, first mm -hmm. of all? How did you simulate pollution in those rivers? And what kind of design approaches did students come up with? What do you think of those? Okay, so the rivers, we had these plexiglass, like, long boxes. Um, what were the size of these boxes? Oh, man, I, I don't know the dimensions exactly, but they, they held around 300 liters of water. Okay. So they weren't tiny, <laughs> but they weren't too massive. Like, they were enough. Um, and then we had um, an array of river rocks, bricks, sand, 
um, pebbles, so different sized rocks and, and um, they had to, and, and also some other plastic and different things that they could use. And they can, they can design their riverbed. Mm-hmm. So they got to design their riverbed how they wanted to. And um, then they, so again, looking at, you know, how is it going to flow? So they needed to have stagnant areas and they also needed to have areas of good flow. And so these were an, a, a loop, right? So then they had to have like a, a waterfall okay. that went into a, t- an, into a tank the, uh, and then had a, a circulating pump that then went back up. Okay. And so the rivers were circulating. Kind of like a garden feature where you have like water in like a, a garden features, that <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Yes, very similar to okay. that. Um, and so then they had to, I'm trying to think. So then they would... Um, fill up their water and so they had to have these types of making the riverbeds then so this is this is over four weeks so this in lab so about three and a half hours and then they um were given they got to decide on pollution either industrial or uh sewage gross (laughs) yeah um and so the industrial was kind of a cloudy mixture I can't, actually, I don't remember what was in that one. And I remember the sewage was coffee and some other things as So well. it looked gross, yes. but it wasn't actually It gross. was not real sewage or industrial <laughs> you know, waste. Right, so uh-huh. they're just simulated. Uh-huh. And then the students learned about the EPA requirements of river water. Uh, so there is turbidity, conductivity, temperature. I have to try to remember these. Um, two, more, two more aspects that... I can't think of right now. But so there's th- these aspects that you have for clean water. Um, oh, conductivity. There's one. Okay. Oh, pH. Okay, pH. And so they had to then, so then uh, they got a sample of the waste and they got to kind of see what the original, what the waste would be like. And then you dump in four liters of this waste into their river and they have to figure out how to clean it. Mm. To meet those five points. And so what did they, did they like basically put their pollution prevention devices in the path of the water and as it recirculated, it would kind of, like if they put a filter in there, it would start to fill up the filter, that kind of thing? So there was filters, but the rivers had to run and they can't overflow, right? right? Uh So there is, you can't put in... um, A really small filter put a right into the river, in right? There, right? And uh, I always made sure I connected the students when they were looking at solving these. That you know, um, these these are real rivers. So these are like pilot scales. I would say that these are pilot scales of real rivers, and that you are charged with cleaning up a real size river. So your pilot scale needs to be something that could be implemented in a real river. So I would say, oh, you can put a filter right through the middle of the river. Mm-hmm. Is that practical? And what about the wildlife? What about the fish and the turtles? And you know, Good what point. are they going to do? So I really made them think about these things as they're they're you know trying to implement these these um, interventions. So a lot of them I taught I taught them about um, um, what is it when you coagulation. Okay. Right. So, how you can uh, to help clear up water, like uh, agglomeration of the particles and stuff like right. that. Right. Well, usually um, that is more for like clay. Okay. And that sort of thing. So, if it's like a really cloudy turbidity, uh, turbidity in the water, it could be from like clay and that sort of thing. 
Um, so there's there's different ways to go about like cleaning cleaning the river. Um, and so they would then have to test. So then they would start testing it. And they're like, okay, we're we need to bring up the pH, and or you know we need to do these things. So the industrial the industrial waste had a um, had a low pH, and the uh, sewage had a high pH. And then they <laughs> they would do this. So then, of course, when they started adjusting pH, the conductivity would always go right through the roof. Right, because I'm <laughs> presuming if it was you know you need to raise it, then you're adding some sort of base like potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide. <laughs> now you got all those ions in there, and the conductivity goes through the roof. Uh, um, usually, people can uh, the students could get some of them, but conductivity <laughs> is probably the hardest one. Interesting. For them to ever meet. Interesting. So the ones, if they did, what did they do? Like, what were the folks who, or maybe you can't say that because you might have a student listening to oh. the podcast. <laughs> uh, there are some really interesting solutions that the students would do, as I said, looking at coagulation of, of some of the particles to try to, to, try to um, get some of the pollutants out. Um, or at least they settle to the bottom and then they would think about this. I also, you, I mean, in, in the short amount of time and only a few weeks in the lab uh, and three hours, one time, one time a week for three weeks, they're not gonna be able to solve all of this. So what I had them do is then, whatever they tried to do in the lab, I would ask them in their final report that they then design, take some of the data that they got from doing the actual experiments and then, and then extrapolate that to a design for a real river. So I tried to get them to think about they could design a fictitious river or a real one, and then look at how uh, remediation of the river could actually happen. So I let them kind of innovate a bit and then say, okay, we can use, uh, cattails are known to take in heavy metals. Mm. Um, you know, looking at different ways that they've, uh, rivers have, they dredge the bottom of the rivers to take out um, some of the pollutants. Um, and so they, they researched how real river remediation could happen. And then they actually tried to take what they learned from the lab and apply it. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. The other fun thing about this project is, as I said, they're consultants for this town to remediate the river. And then when they give their presentations, it's town hall styled. So all of the um, uh, the people in the audience are town members. So they're all given like parts to play. Yes. Uh huh. Um, and oh, you're not given parts, but you know you're a town member. Mm -hmm. uh, how is this river going to affect you? So we have we would have the upper class. So this is usually in the third year. So we would have the seniors that have already been to this class come back as town members and they can ask questions like you know i'm um a i have a brewery off of this river and i'm worried that you're going to affect the river and my brewery what are you going to do to help me with this or i have a um, restaurant right next to the yeah, river or, and it's or going i have to cows ruin. and mm. they're you know can they they do this or i'm a fisherman how sure. is this gonna affect so we have them ask real, real questions that somebody that was living in that town would affect them. And it's, it's a different type of presentation and a different type of questions than they're used to. So it's not just about their design, but how their design will affect this, you know, society and culture of the town 
which kind of gives them a, a, a little bit more of a broader idea of, of what kinds of questions could come up as an engineer. Well, well I love that too, because as a ABAT PEV, one of the student outcomes for EAC programs is to be able to communicate to a wide variety of audiences. Mm -hmm. And that's really neat because, you know, when usually the wide variety of audiences, like students and faculty, that's a wide variety of audiences. But if you've got like town people, you know, or even simulated town people, that's a totally different thing. And you're right. It's a very different type of question that you're going to have to answer from someone who's interested as a constituent as opposed to someone who like has to come up with a question because, you know, like, oh, well, the professor said I have to, or the professor's like, I got to grade them on something. So I like that a whole lot. Yeah. And so then the seniors have fun with it and they'll ask them questions. And then, you know, the, the, the students are like, oh, I'm not quite sure how to answer this. And they have to, they also have to learn how to be, you know, a little bit of decorum, right? You can't just be like, I don't like that question. You can't do that. Oh, let me think about this. And how do I be, how do I be, you know, cordial and answering a question that I didn't think was relevant for what I was doing, but might be to to that person. So under to have some understanding there too. I really like it. That's very <laughs> interesting. It, in fact, I think I saw you give that presentation at AICHE, and I don't know if it was AICHE this past uh, November, but regardless. I had a lot of fun hanging out with you at AICHE this past <laughs> November in Boston. Uh, it was a really good time. We had uh, we had been out uh, with a bunch of other people like for dinner and drinks a handful of times. It was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, we had some fun. Yeah. And uh, you made some fun jokes. Yes, I, some very terrible jokes, as I recall. <laughs> I love making bad jokes. And uh, I think a couple of them got laughs, I think. Not all of them. But one of the highlights for me was when you received the... AICHE Education Division's Innovation in Chemical Engineering Education Award, and that's a that's a really neat award because it's given for a like a specific innovation in chemical engineering education, and your innovation was really neat where you have a sustainable energy education program, and as part of this, you take the students to Brazil where they have a really thriving renewable energy program and it's obviously also a really beautiful place. And so I have tons and tons of questions (laughs) about this. So I'm wondering, you know, what inspired you to do this sustainable energy program? You know, why is Brazil a good choice for this program? And what would you and your students do when you were in Brazil? Sure, so um, I'll start with my tagline, which is, um, did you know 80% of the energy that's in Brazil's grid is from sustainable sources? I actually did, but that's because I'm a big <laughs> nerd about this stuff. It's mostly from sugarcane, is that right? No, no. So uh, energy in their grid is mostly from hydroelectric. Is that right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, fuels is different. Okay. So I'm, I'm talking about energy in their grid um, is from mostly from hydroelectric. Okay. And so in the United States, it's... No, no, but what's the percentage? Oh, of oh, renewables. For renewable, 10%? Uh, conflicting information, but about 14. Okay, all right. So, 1480. There is something to be learned from what they do in Brazil um, for a variety of reasons. Um, hydroelectric is, uh, yeah, it is um, one, they have the resources in the water. Right. Right? Of to course. do this. Um, so, uh, not saying it, uh, what I tell a lot of my students is uh, renewable energy is 
a passion of mine. I'll get into that in a minute, but um, there's not, it's not all pros. So I'm not, you're not, though I will go in and talk about the highlights of why renewable energy is really important. There are still cons, right? So large, massive hydroelectric plants, though, though can pr provide a lot of energy um, and are very efficient because there's no heat, right? So they're about 90% efficient, which is amazing. Um, can still cause some environmental issues, you know, making large dams that cover um, a large amount of uh, land when you're making these dams. Um, there's a new dam now in Northern Brazil in the Amazon called Belomanchi that um, when they, they built some of these dams actually displaced a lot of indigenous people that have lived there for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. So I talk about the social issues along with the, with the um, sustainable energy. So sustainable energy is great and we need to talk about why looking at climate change, but also looking at the uh, effects that it could have on the social, cultural, economic pieces, and environmental pieces. So there's a lot of things. Okay, I'm trying not to go uh, too much into a, a different realm. Uh, let's bring me back to what was the other question again? Uh, so we were talking about, so there was why Brazil? What inspired you to do this? Okay, so um, I got very into sustainable energy after reading this book um, called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. I've not read the book, no. Blew my mind. Um, and so why? So the, the book is not so much about sustainable energy. It was really about a philosophy of our culture about taking. A lot of what our collective culture is right now is a lot about taking from the land and not enough giving back and it harming um, the environment and the, our planet. That's kind of the overall arching theme that I got out of the book. And specifically, it was talking about how we don't learn from past cultures. And um, I start reading this and I was like, uh -huh. I don't, you know, like, yeah, I know I don't know my 16th great grandfather's name or what they did. I'm lucky if I can go back two or three generations. Um, but they were talking about, you know, learning from past experiences, but our culture is very much what's the newest innovation and what's the next future thing with not looking into the past. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't fully sold on this yet until I had the weather channel on. And now I'm gonna, this was quite a few years ago now, but um, weather channel, not, right. it doesn't even exist anymore. It's like a TV show, I don't think. But <laughs> it was just like had different random things. And so all of a sudden it was um, up next. They're interviewing this, um, the, Tsunami happened in Sri Lanka. Okay. Uh, something like 200,000 people died from the tsunami. Devastating, horrible. And the Weather Channel went and interviewed this indigenous population where not one person got remotely harmed from this um, tsunami that happened. And I, I piqued my interest and I went, what? And so they interviewed them and the chief said, well, we were taught when the ocean runs away from us, we need to go to the sacred rock and this part of you know um, the island and we need to pray until 
they're not mad at us anymore and the, the ocean comes, you know, back. And all of a sudden, I just, it was just like this light bulb that went off and I was like, oh my goodness, this is exactly what the book had been saying, how we don't go through this, like, uh, listening to what had happened in the past and that this indigenous population knew exactly what happened but our our all of our new technology and our innovations didn't tell us that tsunami was going to happen and you know a lot of this disaster happened so then i this book had me thinking about sustainability and the environment and as a chemical engineer i found that to be in, um, like a call right as a chemical engineer we really look at um, different processes and and I really wanted to say how can we look at different processes to really help right cultures and and our planet and the environment so this is where this I know this is kind of a long story but this is where no, it's a wonderful story I really like that this is where I started right so this is what got me into sustainability and I started doing some sustainability projects in first year when I was teaching first year and an associate dean or it was my boss at the time was like oh they're looking for people to do uh, to run a dialogue so at Northeastern we have a thing called the dialogue civilizations they're a um, we have summer semesters that are about six weeks um, that happen May and June or July and August. And in those summer semesters, we can have a faculty-led international program where you can bring a, a class of students to another country and teach them. And I went, oh, that sounds interesting. I knew about the, the sustainability that Brazil had been, had been working on um, so the hydroelectric, but also looking at innovations in wind in Northeast Brazil and also sugarcane ethanol. Yep, that's Still, what I was thinking yes, of. Yes, yeah. um, which is a fuel and biodiesel and a lot of other things that they've done, even sustainable cities and how they've reconstructed some of their cities in Brazil to actually make them um, uh, public transportation much more accessible. So there was less cars in their cities, which drove down um, pollution and actually allowed access to people that um, may, may um, be in lower socioeconomic areas, be able to get into the city easierly and get to work. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I went to a like, oh, well, I have some kind of ideas of what I could do. And I went to a meeting, connected with some people and... And um, they're like, we can help you start to put something together. And I was like, all right. And <laughs> like, uh, I put in a proposal and three months later, I was thrown together this program and a new course on alternative energy technologies and brought 16 students to Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> Though it has done, a, I've had a couple of different iterations of the program over the nine years I've been doing this now. So that was the first one was in 2013. Um, so um, I'm also wondering what kind of things do you do with the students in Brazil? So um, a few things. One, we go and visit different um, sustainable energy sites. So, and I, I have, uh, the program has um, students from all different engineering or STEM backgrounds. So I have students in bioengineering, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering. So it could be industrial engineering. So I've had some architecture students and biology students. Um, 
So I really try to give them a broad range of different types of sustainable energy technology. So we do go to an ethanol plant, uh, but we also go to, um, they have a green building council there. So we go and there's a couple of high rises that have LEED gold certification. So we can see how they air condition, uh, you know, a very large, like 30, uh, 60, you know, uh, story um, building, but is lead gold. So how they recirculate the air and they exchange the um, the water, the gray water, and how they clean it. And so there's all these different ways of looking at it. Um, let's see, what else do we go to? Um, uh, solar, uh, a solar company that looks at different ways that they um, use different types of solar panels and um, different ways that they can fo- the solar panels can follow the sun uh, to I've make them more like that. effective. It's super cool, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my students also do a project with uh, Brazilian university students. So uh, I think it's really important to have. Um, some sort of communication with the uh, other Brazilian students around their age and to work on a project because I think it's so cool to have that intercultural just just being in Brazil is one part but it's, I think it's only a small part of them really understanding and working um, together uh, learning about the culture and how they you know how they work and so by working on a project that has to do with sustainability and um, a company and they get to work together and, and meet some do some case studies and actually do some design in doing sustainability I love that they get to work with these students from another culture too like you said I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about going somewhere new is getting to meet new people too and kind of getting to see what they're like and what makes them tick and how they approach problems and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, um, you know, engineering in different countries can, you know, is taught a little differently too. So it's, and the way that they do um, education, um, Brazil has a a very um, interesting and vibrant education community have you ever heard of Pablo Ferrer? I, I haven't, no. Oh, he's a big education. Um, uh, he does a couple things. Uh, I don't think he's living anymore. But in the 60s, he got very into, there was a very large illiterate population in Brazil. And uh, he essentially was a proponent of educations for everyone. And so he developed a whole new program for which ended up being disseminated all through Brazil on um, teaching them how to, teaching teachers how to teach, uh, how to read to people and was a uh, very big in the education community. Super interesting. (laughs) So, you know, one of the things that I think about too, and you talked about this a little bit, was your program that you just talked about is awesome when there isn't a raging global pandemic. (laughs) And I I can't imagine what sort of went through your head about how you were going to continue that program whenever the pandemic was going on, but you did it. So how did you do that? I did. So, um, yeah, everything shut down mid-March. And I'm like, okay, I was supposed to go to Brazil in May. Well, that was going to happen. 
Um, we weren't quite sure yet, but within like three days, they're like, nope, we're closing everything. And I wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. And everything else, you know, oh, oh, you're going to teach online tomorrow. So good luck trying to figure that out. And I was teaching Capstone with 110 students. So I was like, all right. And then um, the uh, Northeastern came to me and was like, well, do you still want to do the program but try to do it virtually? And I have a partner in Brazil called Campus B. Um, they help me uh, run a lot of the logistics for my program, finding the Brazilian students and the companies to work with, uh, companies that we go and visit, um, in helping me deal with some of the infrastructure of the program. So I contacted them and I said, hey, you wanna to try to do this virtually? And they were like, sure, we're game. All right, let's do this. So I ended up having um, 20 students virtually doing this program. And so um, I, I teach two courses. So I teach conservation principles and um, energy systems courses. Uh, in, in, at Northeastern, it's kind of a, a general engineering, a 3,000 level course. And what I did is I, I, we got a company from Brazil. It was a paper pulp company called Suzano. And um, they gave us a couple of ideas for projects. And we had Brazilian students come in. I had a Slack so that the students could communicate with each other and um, did some cultural uh, events as well. Uh, we did a cooking class where we made, made pound de queijo. What's pound de queijo? <laughs> oh, it's the, it's, it means cheese bread. Oh. And they're made, it's made out of- <laughs> Sounds um, like a Minnesota Minneapolis delicacy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has no gluten. It's yucca flour. Okay, I think that's all, less Minnesota, I guess. Yeah. I don't, I don't know, maybe it's not. Oh, yucca flour, I think it's yucca flour. I think there's got to be, I think there's egg, water, and cheese, in like a, usually a harder cheese like Parmesan or mm -hmm. I'm sure different in Brazil, but, um, and we made it, we all kind of worked sitting there cooking together and then <laughs> we all did it on Zoom, like That's cooked great. together in Zoom. We also made Brigadeiros, which is, um, they're little chocolate caramel balls is what I'll call them, okay. covered with sprinkles. Oh wow! And it's um, usually for like kids' birthday parties. How so much we fun. made yeah. So we did a cooking class. Um, we did capoeira, which is is like considered Brazilian fight dancing. I was gonna say I've heard of that before. Yeah. Uh, think of a a very dance form of karate. Kind you know, of. if I remember, and I might not remember this story correctly, but I think it was a uh, it originated because it was a way for people who were in like indentured servitude to be able to practice fighting but without the people who um you know had indentured them knowing that they were practicing fighting because they weren't allowed to train like in fighting is that right that's that's exactly it and so they got to you know they got to train in fighting without having to say oh no we're fighting so it was like a way to like bring in part of their culture um what I in, in really think is interesting in Brazil is the way that um, a lot of people that um, came to their country, uh, either voluntary or in, you know, uh, not under their own uh, voluntary uh, wanting to be there, but that they've really come into melding into what a Brazilian culture is now, like capoeira, like um, some of the food like feijoada, which is a... Um, um, black bean stew with a lot of meat 
But where it originated from is uh, they used to make these big, um, they, you, you get the scraps of the, the meat parts that mm-hmm. you didn't want, uh, like cow hooves and that sort of thing. And they would mm-hmm. just put it in the stew with lots of spices. Uh-huh. And how I have it now, um, it's delicious. I, I was going to say, it's starting to make me hungry. <laughs> it sounds really good. So, uh I guess anything else about Brazil? That's I, I could go on and on about how cool that sounds. Yeah, the only other thing that I do try to also um, do while we're there with the students is um, try to do some sort of service project. So they get to um, learn a little bit more about the culture and how people um, uh, how people live there, and they mm-hmm. get to kind of go in um, and see that. So. Um, I'm trying to think of um, one that we've done where we helped build uh, solar lamps for people in the Amazon Mm -hmm. um, because having lighting in the Amazon, especially in um, outdoor lighting, is much more safe for them. So, but they needed something that um, didn't need electricity. So doing like solar lamps were Mm -hmm. one. So we actually went and built some of these to then be sent to the Amazon. That sounds that like a really thing. terrific program. Yeah. Very cool. We have a lot of fun, and I really just try to get the students to be aware that the, as engineers, and we start looking at solving problems, that the, you know, taking into effect the, the social and cultural areas, they may be, uh, be different in how you solve a problem than you would in another region. So the way you'd solve one certain problem in the United States can be very different in how they do it in Brazil. And uh, for many factors, economic, you know, different um, resources that they have, policies that have been done um, that can, can really, as an engineer, make you have to think about different ways to innovate problems by looking at these. So I always try to pull in multiple different facets of how they look at a problem in different ways so that they can look at how this could be solved. That's awesome. (laughs) So the next thing that we got on the list is Felder, Rousseau, and Bullard. And so (laughs) we've got section 6.5a coming up. And this is kind of funny because we're sitting across the table from each other, which is something that has never happened in the history of In the Fumud, which is super fun, by the way. But we actually get to like look at the same pages together, which is oh, kind of neat. <laughs> Did not bring my book with me to the conference. Well, I've got the pages right here. I didn't bring my book either. I printed off some scanned copies. Yay. But, so we're on 6.5a, but we were just chatting beforehand, and you said that this is something you don't really cover in your class, and I'm kind of curious why that is, because there are <laughs> so, there are lots of things in this book that I cut in the interest of time, uh-huh. and I'm kind of curious, why do you decide to cut this? Oh, <laughs> oh throwing me to the wolves! <laughs> uh, yeah, in the interest, for me it was in part of the interest of time. Um, I, I do actually think that this is really valuable, but in the first year um or sorry in the conservation principles there's just there's a lot that i want to cover there's a lot yeah and i think there's a lot of fundamentals that i think are really um need to be addressed that i never get to this i don't get this far um and it purely because what i try to do in 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 when i teach conservation is i do the material balances reactions and then i actually do a little intro on thermo 
and an intro into transport. Mm-hmm. So um, a little bit of fluid dynamics, and that leads them into um, what they'll be taking next. And um, incredibly helpful, specifically when I teach conservations when I go to Brazil, where I'm going to on Tuesday. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so right from Minneapolis to Brazil. More that, or less. Quite, that's yeah. quite a change. <laughs> um, and then going to uh, summer school in between. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. But I, I tried to add a little bit more thermo because of the sustainable energy and the fluid dynamics when it comes to some of the. So <laughs> that's how I connect those. So, yeah, I don't really get into uh, that much into solubility and yeah, saturation. It's yeah. something that I don't cover in a ton of detail either. Mm. Usually, uh, I usually talk a little bit about, you know, saturation and supersaturation, just because I think it's kind of important for students to understand, like if you ever see a solution of say potassium hydroxide mm-hmm. and you see the little crystals in there, uh-huh. that is an incredibly high concentration solution of potassium hydroxide. In fact, it's so saturated that it's got more potassium hydroxide than can fit in the water, than can be dissolved in oh, the right. water. And that's why you see the little crystals mm. in there. And so if you ever see that sort of thing, that's what's going on. It's mm. kind of like making salt. Like I, my senior design project this past year, I would usually do food. I mentor a senior design team. Uh-huh. And it was about production of salt from Atlantic Ocean uh, seawater, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. And so my students actually, like they designed a whole facility to do this. But one of the students, his parents lived in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, mm-hmm. at the beach. And so he actually collected like a gallon of seawater and then in his kitchen applied their process like on kind of just a bench scale level. Uh-huh. And he made these amazing crystals that look just like Maldon sea salt oh. that you, you buy like at the grocery store, the yeah. fancy flake salt. And it looks just like it. And he said you can almost see whenever it's about ready to start crystallizing uh-huh. because you can see the crystals start to form in the water. And I was like, oh, that's super, it's super saturated at that point. And he's like, yeah. And like immediately after that, you start to see the crystals forming and then the the rest of the water kind of boils away. Uh And I was like, that is cool. So that's something that I think is kind of important to catch somewhere, Mm. but it's sort of one of those things that, like you said, there's so much in (laughs) MEB and it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose from the students. I don't spend a ton of time in there. I do like the example problem that's in here. So uh, it's crystallization and filtration. I definitely know this problem. As an undergrad, this was one I really struggled with. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, it's one that I remember my uh, professor I had for uh, this class. This was one of the problems that he said, make sure that you understand how this example works. And so as a student, I like read it and I'm (laughs) like, oh, I get it. Right. And then, you know, one very similar to it came up on the exam and I was like, actually, I really should have tried to solve this one. Because that's, I think the thing is whenever as a student you read this, you're like, oh, I read the example. I know how it works. What you really need to do is try to solve the example, like cover up the answer, try to solve it and get stuck. And then you have to like, you know, figure what your way through it. And then you can check to see if you did it right. Oh, definitely. That's the hard part though, because it's so much harder to do it that way. Oh, and I think as a professor, (laughs) when you start teaching like a new course or something and you try to go through the problems and all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, I can do this. And then you start going through the answer and then I'll go, oh wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) 
I have to try to go and solve this, especially for a course I haven't taught before. Oh, I tell I'll you. I'll go through the problems and I'd be like, oh yeah, I can go and explain this in class. Oh no, no, that's burned me a few times. So now I have to go back and be like, I have to make sure I know how to exactly do this before I go in front of the class. In my, in my chemical engineering bridging course that I've talked about a handful of times, uh, we... One of the things I have to teach the students is transport phenomena, like graduate transport. Mm. And, you know, I use BSL, which is kind of the classic textbook for that. But there's a handful of times in that book where it's something very complicated. And they're like, you know, uh, this this equation, which is super complicated, when we make the assumptions of blah and blah, simply reduces down to this. (laughs) And they don't show you how it gets there. And I'm like why would you skip all those steps? Like, you know, this is really hard for me and I'm the professor. You could make it a little easier because, I mean, the students are going to have a very hard time with it. But, yeah, that's exactly the thing. Like, you as a professor, when you teach a course, you never learn something for real until you teach a course in it. Oh, yeah. Because then you have to figure out all those little things. Like, why does the book say this? This doesn't make sense. And Uh work your way slowly through it because you know your students are super sharp. Oh, and a, yeah. you'll have a bunch of them raise their hand. But but what's this? Yeah, like, how's ah, that? I didn't figure that out before <laughs> class. Yeah. The big joke, of course, is you always just have to stay one lecture ahead of the students. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, try your best to do that. <laughs> uh-huh. So 6.5a, I mean, I'm I'm comfortable just saying, like, it's, it's good. There's a terrific uh, example in there. And I think the concepts of saturation and supersaturation is really important to understand. They are important. I, um, though I, I don't, I don't know where else it would fit, but <laughs> I don't know where else we teach it in the curriculum. Yeah, I, I guess solution thermodynamics. I could see it oh, yeah. in what we call transport to, or excuse me, thermo two. Thermo two. Yeah, where you start learning saying, yeah. solution thermodynamics. I could see it being a good place there. Mm-hmm. Um, and and maybe even. I'm trying to think in separations. You might see this too. Yeah, I could see that. Mm-hmm. And then you know, there's whole colligative properties and all that, like freezing point depression and stuff like that, that I think you could get into as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that's a topic for another section (laughs) of the book. So the next thing that I got on here for us to talk about is music. You know we like to talk about music on the uh, show, Courtney. Yeah. I I believe you're a listener. Is that right? Yes. So... You've had some time to prepare. You knew this question was coming. <laughs> I did. <laughs> so what what kind of music do you like to listen to? This is something we haven't ever talked about. Okay. So um, I'm going to be like Taryn. I'm be like, <laughs> I like everything. Uh, so I I like lots of different music. I was a, uh, a avid music listener um, ever since I was young. My parents were really into like the 60s and 70s so I like grew up with, so if you, put, if you put almost anything on the radio I probably know all the words to almost really? anything so that used to be a fun that was like a fun thing it's the way I especially am in my 20s is like at any radio station and I probably know most of the words to almost everything um, but my favorite band will go there because okay. I like everything so that that's hard to say I, I should say mostly everything uh, my favorite band of all time is Hanson Hanson Okay, I have not heard that one before. So what what attracts you to Hanson? Okay, so um, yeah, I, I, I I've gotten a quite a bit of flack from at least people my age, and though you know you feel old when I tell my students like when I go to the dialogue and I tell them what my favorite band, and they just kind of go, um, yeah, I don't know if I know who you're talking about, and I'm like, okay. 
I know I've hit that threshold uh-huh. now. It's either getting jeered by, you know, people that know what I'm talking about or not. Um, no, I, I, they're my favorite band uh, purely because, not purely, but um, they make their own music. They have their own label. Um, they started out, you know, a lot of acapella. They play their own instruments. And their music is upbeat, wholesome, and, um, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a big connection with their music, with, with who they are. They're being true to who they are. They don't care what, you know, other people think of them. Um, they have a lot of roots in liking the, a lot of the, the you know, um, 60s rock, you know, and, but bringing it to their own speed. They write their own music. And I just love that. I love the, the wholesomeness of, of, of how they, they love to be musicians and they just, they're them, you know? Uh-huh. Now, I only know them, I believe, from their hit Mbop, right? <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, and that came out, what, what year did that 97. come out? 97. I was going to say, because I was a teenager, I believe, whenever that came out. So was I. And I just remember <laughs> that, and it was an earworm, and yeah. you couldn't get away from it there for a little while whenever it was popular. Yeah. It was on every radio station. But they, they've done a lot since then. Right. Um, many albums, and actually just came out with a new album, and touring this summer, but of course I'm in Brazil, and every place they're going to be, you know, they're coming to Boston, and I can't be there. Oh, that's too bad. So you got to miss out on your favorite band because you're going to be in sunny Brazil. Oh, man. (laughs) It is winter in Brazil, though. Oh, yeah. Which doesn't mean a whole lot because it's still like 70s during the day. It's probably quite lovely. Yeah, it's it's 70s during the day in Sao Paulo, at least. It's about 70s during the day and about low 50s at night. Yeah. Or high 50s at night. We'll feel sorry for you. (laughs) But yeah, no, I love love music, um, pop and rock and punk and uh, <laughs> no I you know I'm the same way you are about uh, remembering lyrics to music and I know whenever I interviewed Alif she said she's the same way like in 60s 70s oh, yeah. 80s and today was, that was yeah, what I go. listened to yeah. back whenever I was younger yeah. on the local radio station yeah. and yeah I mean I know the lyrics to so many old songs so much and people are like how do you and I'm like ah. I'll go It'd up. be hard to find stuff that I don't know. Uh-huh. I'll go up and sing karaoke and put on some, like, Jim Croce hit. <laughs> and they're like, how do you know all the words to don't mess around with Jim? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, I, I can't tell you. I just, somehow, I know all the words oh, to that. Oh, I am so, that that is so me, too. <laughs> yeah. I, I probably don't know much too much on country. Growing up in New York, it was more, like, you know, New York '90s hip hop. Oh, oh that was some of the best. Yeah, some some Biggie and you know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I actually just listened to. Uh, was taking an Uber to uh, go out to dinner with some friends the other day, and I had mentioned a, a Biggie song, Notorious B.I.G. came on, and I had mentioned to the Uber driver that probably my favorite of those hip hop songs, especially from uh, Biggie's portfolio, <laughs> is Juicy. Oh, that's Remember my Jesus? favorite song too. Really? Okay. Yes. So I'm curious if you you have the same favorite lyric as me. Oh. Uh, but he talks about uh, the song is just incredible. But one of the things that the themes is that he grew up with without a lot, yeah. and then when he you know now he's a rap star and he has a lot. You know he's very wealthy and everything, and he has a whole thing about how. You know, uh, the landlord dissed us, wondering, we wondered why Christmas missed us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't, didn't get to have a Christmas because they didn't have a lot of money. Um, and then he would say, 
birthdays was the worst days. days. Now we drink champagne, champagne when we Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that line. That's one of my all-time favorite Agreed. lines. <laughs> Agreed. I love that song. Oh, oh yeah. Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't, couldn't picture, picture this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Me and Matt rapping. Yeah. <laughs> You're the first one to rap with me on, on In The Few Mode. That's terrific. So I guess we have an awards dinner to get to tonight yes. for the ASWE Kemi division, which is coming up very soon. So we should probably wrap it up, but this has been wonderful, Courtney. <laughs> I've had so much fun. It's so nice getting to talk with you in general and being able to be here in person is just wonderful. I'm glad we were able to work it out. Me too. Cool. <laughs> Did you like this edition of In the Fume Hood? Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasting fix. Follow us on Twitter at In the Fume Hood, and feel free to share feedback, suggestions, or let us know if we got something wrong.